Are you guys Very good. Um, today's going to be a little bit different. Usually I have notes and stuff. Um, but today, uh, Pastor Bolden would, is going to put a verse up there. And then everybody else, who I know you all bring your Bibles to church because you love God so much. You're going to be in Romans chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. And I'm going to try to do all that today. If I don't, Pastor Bolden would finish it up next time, the next six months or so. Or you, or you can finish it, that's fine. All right, so Romans chapter uh, 4, and then you have James ready? Okay, so James chapter 2. <coughs> chapter 2, verse 14. If you want to start there and then put, kind of put your finger there and then we'll be going back and forth. But James 14, I mean chapter 2, verse 14. When everybody's ready, you can say amen. James 14. Before we start, um, James, James 2 uh, talks about justification, and which is the subject that we're dealing with. We're dealing with justification, uh, which is kind of fitting because this year, 2017, celebrates 500 years of the Protestant Reformation, because you didn't know it was in 1517 that the Protestant Reformation happened, and the two issues of the Protestant Reformation was the scripture, you guys remember when we talked about the scripture a while back, and justification by faith. That was their two uh, biggest issues that, that they had. And the reason why is because the church at the time had a system of salvation that was literally that, it was a system of salvation. And justification the Catholic Church taught and still teaches today, it's a process. It begins when you're baptized. You, once you're baptized, whether you're an infant or whether you're an adult, you're justified. And then that has to be, you have to go through the sacraments, sacrament of confirmation, and they have all these other sacraments that you do to maintain that justification or whatnot. And um, the, the reformers protested against that, hence the name Protestants, and they try to reform the church and, you know, ended up getting excommunicated and kicked out and so forth. And, but the, 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 the biggest issue was the scriptures and the issue of justification. How is a man saved? How do we stand before God? On what basis do we stand before God? So 500 years ago, this all came to a head and, um, the, the truth of justification was thankfully rescued um, after many years of literally 
darkness. People didn't understand this truth. There were groups. God has always had his people, but for the most part, the truth of salvation was hidden. And um, there, was, there was five, I don't know if anybody knows, there was five slogans for the Reformation. They call them the five solas. It was sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. Sola gratia, which is by grace alone. Sola fide, which is by faith alone. Solo Christus, which is Christ alone. And soli Dio gloria, for the glory of God alone. So the five slogans of the Reformation, which is we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. We know this, and in Christ alone, we know this by the scriptures alone, and it's all done for the glory of God alone. That's the five solas of the Reformation, which are celebrated. This is the 500th anniversary this year, and it's, it is the truth of the Bible. So, as Pastor Bolden said last time, justification is at the core. But in many ways, justification is basically the summary of the Christian faith. This is the religion of the Bible is all given to us when you look at the doctrine of justification. Because it deals with how we relate to God and how we as human beings stand before God. Now, in James, okay, that's not James. All right. But in James, in the book of James, um, there is an apparent contradiction to what Paul is saying in, in Romans. So if you go to James chapter 2, you, you've probably heard this before. In James chapter 2, verse 14, this is the apostle James. He says the following. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and is lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted for him as righteous, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. If you go to Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says the following. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So, James is saying that we're justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul is saying that we're justified by faith apart from works of the law. So it sounds that these guys are contradicting each other. It sounds like a contradiction. Now, there's different ways to deal with contradictions. One, I call it my wife's way. 
which is, you're wrong. God is always right. Amen. This will make sense in heaven. Amen. All right? So I, I can go with that. I'm done. I'll see you guys next week. No. Um, and that's actually, that's actually, that's not an anti-intellectual position. God is always right. And if it contradicts what we think, we're wrong. That's how you got to approach the Bible. Approach the Bible by saying the Bible is true, God is right, and if it doesn't sound like it makes sense to me, I'm dumb, the Bible is right. That's, that's the perfect approach. But we know that the Bible doesn't contradict itself, so if this doctrine that is so important, right, sounds like there's a contradiction. One guy is saying we're not saved by faith alone. The other guy is saying we're saved by faith apart from the works of the law. How does this make sense how do we put all this together? Well, if you go back to James, there's a key here about what James is trying to say is that James is dealing with two different, with a, these guys are dealing with two different issues, all right? Now, the reason that I'm talking about this is because when Martin Luther is preaching justification by faith alone, this is the text that was thrown at the reformers. And to this day, the Roman Catholic Church uses this text to defend their teaching of justification by, by faith and works. That's what they call it. Um, and the, the, the clue to this is that James begins by asking this question. He says, if someone says he has faith, right? If someone comes up and he says he has faith, can that faith save him? So the key is, he's saying, is a man, if a man comes and tells you that he has faith, can the faith that this man has save him? So he's saying that the, the faith saves, but what faith is it that you have, and how do we know that the faith that you have saves you? So is the issue is the quality of the faith more than just the issue of faith, right? He wants to know what is this faith that you have. So then he goes on to say, he says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'm going to show you my faith by my works. So the, the faith that saves is a faith that can be seen in works. So it's a faith that works. So when James is dealing, Paul is dealing with Jewish people that are coming to him pushing the law. James is dealing with people who say they have faith. He wants to know what is the faith that they have. So they're not contradicting each other. They're using the same doctrine to deal with different issues, right? So how does this work out? How does this issue of works and faith work? So... Romans chapter 4, we're going to begin in Romans chapter 4, and eventually we'll end in Romans chapter 8. So here's, here's what's happening. Paul is preaching the gospel primarily to Gentiles. And Paul finds himself in a conflict with Jewish people. This is, this is what's happening in the day. Now, if you, if you read the parables, like if, you, if you read Jesus, right, Jesus gave all these parables throughout his ministry. And... Some of these parables um, 
for example, the, the prodigal son. Everybody knows that parable, right? It's, what is that a parable about? Anybody? Coming back home, backsliding, right? So the parable is about two brothers, right? One brother takes his father's money and goes out and spends it or whatever, right? There's another brother. He stayed at home, right? He stayed at home working with his father or whatever. And then when the other brother comes back and the father receives him, he throws the party, the other brother got mad. He's like, wait a minute, you never thrown a party to me. I've been here all this time. I've done all this work, right? And the father tells him, well, your brother was lost and now he's found. But the other brother was happy. See? The brother who stayed at home is the Jew. The brother who was out with the pigsty, you know, why did Jesus would pick a pigsty? Well, because the Gentiles, the, pig, the pigs were not allowed anywhere near, you know. So that's the Gentile coming back home and being received. And the brother who's been at home with the father all this time is like, wait a minute, I've been here. There's another parable. Jesus gives a parable of a man who owns a vineyard. So this guy owns a vineyard, and he sees some people over there, a group of folks, he's like, hey, you guys want to work in my vineyard? I pay you a day's wage. I don't know, $100 for eight hours. Okay, you know, they come up. Two hours go in, they're working. Four hours, they're working, you know. Six hours in, they're working, and then the owner of the vineyard says, another, he sees another group of people over there. He says, hey, what are y'all doing? Whatever, you guys want to work? I pay $100 for the rest of the day. They go and work two hours. When it comes time to get paid, he gives this group of people who worked eight hours, $100 each. He gives this group of people who worked two hours, $100 each. These guys were like, whoa. We, we work for eight hours, you're giving us $100. They work for two hours, you're giving them $100. You know, that's not fair. And the owner of the vineyard is like, well, made an agreement with you for eight hours for $100. You thought it was good, right? I'm the owner of the vineyard. This ain't America. We ain't got no labor laws. I own this place. I pay whoever I want, whatever I want. You guys were happy when I paid you. The first group is the Jew. The second group is the Gentile, coming in late. So Jesus' parables are anticipating this conflict that was going to happen. Well, Paul steps into the middle of this conflict, and he's preaching justification by faith. The Jew is coming in saying, but the promises and all these things came through the law, promised to us. You can't just come out of cold and walk, you know, walk into this thing. You should at least keep the law for a little while. You should do something for a little while. So Paul is going to set out to prove that faith is not only the, the new way of getting saved, but it's the only way that anybody has ever been saved. So he begins with the father of the faithful, which is Abraham. So chapter 4, verse 1, Romans, he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our father, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. 
For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So he's laboring this point. Abraham, the father of the faithful, the father of the Jewish people, was saved, not by the works of the law, there was no such thing back then, but by faith. And then he goes on to say, not only was he saved before the law, he was saved before circumcision. Verse 9, in this blessing then, only for the circumcised, that is, is this only for the Jew? Or also for the circumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. When did this happen? Was it before he had been circumcised? No, it was after. I mean, it was before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as the seal of the righteousness that he had faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose, the reason why, was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so the righteousness could be counted to them as well. So thousands of years before this conflict that was going to happen between the Jew and the Gentile, God has already dealt with the problem in anticipation. Because Abraham, see, there's two kinds of people. Circumcised people, Jew, uncircumcised people, Gentile. When was Abraham justified by faith? Before he was circumcised. So this man, who is the father of the Jewish people, is saved and enters a relationship with God by faith when he was a Gentile before he observed the law. So he is the father. After that, he receives circumcision as a sign of the covenant. So now he becomes the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He becomes the father of us all. So all, all, all those who believe. So he goes on to say, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Just because you're a Jew and you're circumcised, that doesn't make you a child of Abraham. That was offensive to Jewish people. And coming from a Jew, that makes you a sellout. You're, you're going against our peoples, basically. So, verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law that would be a Jew, who were to be heirs, the faith is full of known. And void. In other words, God gives a promise to Abraham, you're going to be the heir of the world. The whole world is going to be yours. And to your descendants. But this happens before he's circumcised. Because if the promise is given only to the keepers of the law, to the adherents of the law, then the promise would fail because the promise is the whole world. If God didn't give the law to the whole world. He gave it to the Jewish people. So therefore, the promise of the whole world would be voided because it would only apply to those people. 
That's what the Jews thought. The Jews thought that their land and their people were going to be the heirs of the world. But God had told Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you the whole world is going to be yours and to your descendants. But these were not just physical descendants. These were the people who were going to believe like Abraham was going to believe. They were given the promise to be heirs with Christ of the whole world. That has huge implications and a whole other sermon series about how you should see the world. <laughs> That's a whole other sermon series. But we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ of the world through Abraham, our father. So he keeps laboring this point on, on faith. He goes on to verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherents of the law, Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, first of all, God fulfilled his promise to make Abraham the father of many nations. How? Through the gospel. Those of us who believe, I'm, I mean, you cannot get farther away from Israel than Puerto Rico. And I'm, I'm a believer, right? And all of us here are believers. And nobody in the, New in the New Testament times would even imagine us here, right? So that promise has been fulfilled. But this is where he begins to labor on the, the quality of the faith. It's not that Abraham just had faith is that he believed in something that he didn't even see, right? He was not the father of many nations in his time, right? The land that God gave him was not his. He had to buy a piece of land to be buried in. But God told him, this is your land, right? So the faith that he had, Paul goes on to say, he says, in hope, verse 18, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. No one believed, made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was going to able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted as righteous. In other words, it's not that Abraham believed. It's that in his belief and in his faith, he didn't waver. God said, you're going to be a father of many nations. I'm going, to, I'm going to make you the heir of the world. He didn't see that. He never saw that. He died in a pagan land, buried in the land of pagans. But he believed, I'm the father of many nations. Why? Because God said it. And if God said it, then it must be true. I'm the father of many nations. So no one believed about, I love that, no one believed made him waver. No one unbelief comes, right, you're not the father of many nations. Yes, I am. But why is that? God said it. But I don't see it. It doesn't matter. God said it. God said it. I'm going to believe it. 
So there's a quality there to his faith. It wasn't just, okay, this and that. No, he did not waver. It was a consistent, strong, long-lasting faith that he had. He didn't just have faith that one time, right? This is who he was for the rest of his life. He, he lived in light of that. So, um, that is why the Bible says that is why his faith was counted as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him as righteous, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Did you see that? is going to labor. He's, he told us, this, okay, you're justified by faith, but the faith has to be like Abraham's faith. Abraham had a particular type of faith, right? So, chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. All right? So we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. And we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope. In hope. We don't, we don't see it, but in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, like Abraham, we do not waver in our faith. And also, like Abraham, we have been given uh, access into a grace in which we stand, right? We're, we're, it's not an empty. The object of our faith is not like an empty thing. It's, it's something in which we, we stand, and we stand by faith. So, okay, so you prove your point for two chapters. Paul, that we're justified by faith, that the works of the law, okay, do not work into our justification, that Abraham would justify by faith, if that's what you're saying, Mr. Paul. So, I got you. I got your number. We can do whatever we want now, right? What's all this effort of keeping the law and living holy, right? 
dispute. That has nothing to do. So we can live however we want, and we can live in sin because our justification is by faith. Right? Romans chapter 6. This is the most chapter we've ever done in Fathers of the Way one day. All right. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then, Mr. Paul? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? How can we who are dead to sin? Well, I'm not dead. I'm alive, Mr. Paul. How, how we, we, verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into his dead in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, we shall be united with him in resurrection. What, what, that's not, I've never, what, what are you talking about? I'm alive, I'm here. And he's like, you understand, this is, what, this, this is how faith works. See? Faith, like Abraham's faith, believe in the things that he has not seen as if they were. So, why, don't I, why can I live in, you know, I can live in sin. Is that what you're saying? It's like, no, because you are dead and you have been buried with Christ. You're dead to sin. Sin has no dominion over you anymore because you're a dead man. You go to the cemetery, you see a corpse laying there. You can tempt him all you want. He ain't going to sin. He's, he's a corpse. He's dead. That's what Paul is saying. Your old man has been crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. So your old man, your alcoholic, Old man, your drug addicted old man, your whatever you want, old man. God took him and put him in Christ, put him on the cross, and he killed him. He's dead. So that old man is dead, destroyed, and buried. So now we resurrected, living in newness of life. All of this is appropriated by faith. Uh, my old man is dead. He's dead. You have to believe that. Your old man is dead. Whoever you was prior to Christ is dead. That doesn't mean temptations are not there. You know, what is temptation but a reminder, really? If you think about it, temptations is a reminder, right? You, you know, you should, if you were an alcoholic before Christ, and temptation comes and it's like you should drink. Basically, that's you should be who you used to be. That's basically what they're saying, right? The temptation is basically a reminder. It's trying to take you back. And against, and against that unbelief, right, you don't waver in your faith. You're like, well, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm in Christ now. It's what Abraham did all his life, right? So that's the faith that saves. But the faith that saves, it, it's... It's placed on something. It's not emptying somewhere. So he goes on to say, and verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but he lives, the life that he lives, he lives to God. 
to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for unrighteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So what then? Are we to sin because we're not on the law but on the grace? By no means. Do you not know if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. All of this is him pressing the point that faith is what requires to appropriate these things. See, the law required external action. The law told you was right, was wrong, and you do this. But the problem is that the law, in Romans chapter 7, Paul goes on to emphasize the, the purpose of the law is defeating. Not because the law is bad. The law is good. Right? There's, some, there's this idea that some people have that Old Testament bad, New Testament good. Law bad, gospel good. Right? No, law good. We bad. <laughs> gospel good right that's, that's, that's the problem the, pro the law is not bad it's good we're bad and what happens when you try to live by the law this is Romans chapter 7 is the more you try to live the life that the law requires the more the law will show you that you don't so the more you try to live by the law the law just show you you don't because you keep, you, you keep failing. You, the, the, the standard is so high that all you, every time you try to climb, you have to climb more and more and more and more. And you're, you're, you're consistently being defeated by trying to live in accordance to the law. And in Romans chapter 7, the whole Romans chapter 7 is an emphasis to this point. He says, do you not know, brothers, verse 1, that I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. So as long as a person is alive, he lives, the, the law has binding over him, right? If a person, say, owes money to the IRS and he dies, the IRS does not go to the cemetery to dig the guy up and try to take money from him. Why? Well, because I can chase you to the cemetery that's about as far as the law can go, right? So as long as a person is alive, the law has jurisdiction over them. So he gives this example. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. If she marries another man, she's not an adulteress, right? So likewise... My brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to one another, to him who has raised you from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were working our members to bear fruit to death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, 
so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of written code. Right? Not only could the law not save you, the law couldn't even sanctify you. And the reason is because the, the, the passions of the flesh are too weak for the law. And whenever a person tries to live and be holy that way, he's going to be continually be defeated because the law will continue to accuse him and bear down on him and show him his sinfulness. Now, if a person were to die, see, that's, that's the limit. How do I explain? Uh, the, everybody saw The Matrix? Everybody? Okay. In The Matrix, the movie, okay, here's, here's what happened, right? You have... You have uh, you have uh, um, uh, Morpheus, that's his name. He's walking, right? And he's talking to Neo, right? And he says, um, there are these guys called the agents. They jump real high. They dodge bullets, right? You can shoot at them. You can't hit them. Everybody who's fought them has died. But where everybody fails, you won't. Why is that? Because the matrix is a computer program built on rules, and those agents abide by those rules. They can bend them, they can jump real high, they can move real fast. But Neo is the anomaly, right? When the computer program was designed, the calculation failed at one point, and there's only one person that the rules do not abide. So the laws, could be bent, but Neo didn't have to dodge bullets, he just stops them. You can jump real high, I can fly. Why is that? The law is not binding him as other people in the program. He's free, he's born an anomaly, he's free from the law. He didn't know that, but he was freed from the law. When he realized that he's been free from the law, then there's no need for me to even stop dodge bullets. I just go like that and they go away. So, in the gospel, if you read Jesus, Jesus tells his disciple, everybody born of, of all the men born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. But the least of you in the kingdom of God will be greater than he was. What does that mean? Am I better than John the Baptist? No. John the Baptist was born under an old system. We are born under a new system. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. He died under the old covenant. was good, but it was still limited. We are born under a new covenant where we are buried with Christ. We're dead to the law. So when you look at the people in the Old Testament, right, and you look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in, in, in the New Testament, not in the Old Testament, the promises that we are given under the new covenant are so much greater. You see what I'm saying? So the, 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 the capabilities to live the life that God requires under this covenant are greater than the people in the old covenant. Not because we're better. We're not better. We're just like every, just, just like they are. I hear sometimes preachers say, well, the Jews, they disobey God. As if we wouldn't, we would have. 
we do now. <laughs> we, you know what I mean? So the, 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 what Paul is laboring in this thing is like the, the, the law, what, you, what you're clinging to, by which you're trying to be saved and justified, was never intended to do those things. It was all a preview of the real thing that you now have. That's why it doesn't make sense. In the, in the book of Hebrews, he, he, he said, why would you go back to sacrificing and circumcising and all these things? That doesn't make sense. What was the theme of Hebrews? Remember, greater, better, 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 better what? Better covenant. Better mediator. A better sacrifice. A better everything. Right? So, um, the, the, the purpose of the law, if you go to verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Now, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through, that, through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. So the law does not sanctify you. The law shows you how unholy you are. So when the commandment came, which is good, the sin in me, the law through the command, you know, the, the, the sin through the commandment killed me. Just killed me. Now, this is, comes from a man who was a Pharisee. This is, this is his life. Prior to Christ was the law, the law, the law. He's confessing here that all that life as a so-called holy rabbi, he was just dead. He was dead. Dying. So, chapter 8. There is therefore, now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What is, what is the law of sin and death? Romans chapter 7. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. In that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What does that mean? It means that what the law required of you, right? What the law required is fulfilled by those who walk after the Spirit by faith. Now, what does the law require? You know, the... the People, people, and, and even, even in secular law, they talk about the spirit and the letter of the law. You ever heard of that? The spirit and the letter of the law. In the Bible, the, the letter of the law says, you know, thou shalt not lie. What's the spirit of the law? Be honest. Honest. That's the spirit of the law. The, law, the letter of the law says, thou shalt not covet. The spirit of the law is, be grateful what God has given you. you see what I mean? So the requirement, what the law required, is fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, 
but after the spirit. The Christian who lives in a spiritual life, and we're not on sanctification yet, so we'll deal with, I guess, that some other time. But the Christian who lives the life in the spirit would live the life of righteousness that the law required. You see what I mean? What the law was trying to point to is lived out by faith with those who trust in Christ. So the, the, what Paul just showed not only is justification by faith, but the faith of justification, the genuine faith, will produce a righteousness that, is gonna be, that was better than the, what the law could do because the law couldn't do it. That's what he's, that's what he's just proving. So to go back to James, James says, you say that you have faith, Okay, fine. I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, the faith that I have is shown by the works that it produces. And it produces it because of everything that just Paul said. Because we have been buried in Christ. We're dead in Christ. We're not alive to the law. Our old man has been crucified and put aside. Faith believes that as it happened, the way that Abraham believed what he believed as it had happened. He, I, uh, he, what is it the King James says? Hope, hope against hope he hoped or something like that. Hoping against hope. That's a Charles Wesley hymn. Hoping, hoping against hope I stand. Dying and behold I live. Hoping against hope. Abraham stood in the promises of God. Those of us who are here, the children of Abraham, also having his same faith, believe the same promises of God. So the Spirit of God works out the works of the law in our lives by faith. And if the, the, uh, the, this, is, this, is, this is funny. First Corinthians, I just seen this in the way here. First Corinthians, let me see here. The Apostle Paul brags. You know, Paul says that by works, then you can boast. So here's, here's how Paul brags. Right? This, is, this is 1 Corinthians 15. What is this? I guess, I guess seven. let me start with verse 7. He says, then he appeared. He's talking about Jesus, right? This is the whole thing that he talks about, the resurrection of Jesus. Um, then he says, he, Jesus appears to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive. Then he appeared to James, then all of the apostles. And last of all, uh, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am, um, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them. You know all these cats over here? I work harder than any of them. But it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. That's the mystery of God's unity, you know, the, the life of God in us. Paul just bragged. This is, this is how a Christian brags, by the way. I work harder than any of them, but not I. The grace of God in me. Right? Elsewhere he says, the, uh, 
what is, how does he puts it? Uh, it's not I that live, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I live, I live by the faith of Christ. Christ working in me, producing our works, but also us not um, presenting our members, as he says, to unrighteousness. So it is a mystery of us working, God working in us, producing the works uh, of faith. So justification, here's the title. I'm going to give you the title of the sermon. Justification by true faith produces works. Justification by true faith produces works. So that's the time. Amen? Four chapters. Four chapters. I don't know. You, you do that. No. Pastor Bolin will do five chapters. <laughs> <laughs>